Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy with simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Rapunzel creates excitement and encourages financial education. Check out their free mobile app and the interviews of Brian and Miles in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Windy City Historians podcast. All right. We're doing this special episode, Don't Cough, Sneeze, or Spit, from Chris's living room and my work desk. And again, let's just mention the irony of doing a show on the great influenza outbreak during a modern-day pandemic of 2020. Yeah, it's been about three weeks, right, that we've been asked to stay at home. This is not something that anyone anticipated, including us. Right. So we thank the listeners for putting up with any audio issues because we're doing this podcast over Zoom. And not in the Waveland Island studios and with the no. higher quality equipment. We are self-isolating as we should. We're part of the team. We're trying to do the right thing here. Bending, bending the curve. Bending the curve. And I miss the Waveland Island studios, Patrick. And I miss, you always have great snacks. Well, you know, you're like a kid coming from school. Usually we're recording after you get done with work. That after-school snack is always important at any age, right? It is, and I do feel like a kid when I come over to the Wayland Island <laughs> Studios. And thankfully, next time you're over, we can have a beer to celebrate our release from this virus, and hopefully that's very near in the future. Can you drink a beer through a mask? Uh, with a straw, maybe, huh? I don't know. There you go. Okay. So... It, Anyway, what we're going to end up doing, because we talked to Joe Gostaitis, he tells us about early epidemics in Chicago and takes us right into the Spanish flu. Yes, how Chicago was plagued, excuse the pun, literally with these outbreaks throughout its very early history. And then you and I pulled together some research on this. I dug into the Chicago Tribune archives so that we could tell the story also about what happened a little over 100 years ago in Chicago and to the pandemic or epidemic of Spanish influenza. I mean, we got spun up. I got excited about talking about the Spanish flu because all these news reports in our current epidemic keep referencing back to 1918. Yes. In fact, I recently saw something on the news. Somebody who lived during the Spanish influenza recently got COVID-19 and survived it quite a story spanning a century. Wow, yeah. Do you remember any details on that or where the guy was from? I believe it was a woman from Italy who survived. Interesting. 100 years is a long time. Most people throughout history experienced outbreaks often more times than once. So I think we decided we were going to call it the special episode, Don't Cough, Sneeze, or Spit. (laughs) Always amused by that title. (laughs) That was your idea. You're good at titling stuff. You pulled that one from one of the headlines. Well, it just seems so ridiculous and obvious that I guess I was tickled by it. Yeah, it come a long way in 100 years. And, you know, the messaging was good. 
don't sneeze, cough, or spit. You shouldn't be doing this anyway in white company. In a few articles, they got more formal and they said expectorate. Yes. Well, they also had spittoons in those days. That's true. You know, you, you think of the Wild West when you think of spittoons, but I think they stuck around well into the 20th century. I had friends in college that would stick a plug of tobacco in their cheek and they'd have dip cups lying all over the place. God help you, just build one of those things. Did they play for the Cincinnati Reds or? No, no, no. These two guys that I lived with senior year were both poli sci majors. Okay. You know, welcome to the Windy City Historians podcast, Joe. Well, a pleasure to be here. And if you could go ahead and just introduce yourself. My name is Joe Gostaitis. I'm a historian of Chicago. My first book was about Chicago in 1893. My second book was about Chicago in World War I. And I'm working on a third, but I won't reveal that one until it's time. <laughs> Well, we're fans of your books, Joe, and they're both fantastic. And we marvel at how you're able to write such interesting books because having written books, it's kind of a slog. So <laughs> you have a talent for it. Oh, thank you. And so Chris had kind of reached out to you, Joe, to say, hey, you know, we're going to talk about some of the epidemics that have been in Chicago. And you yeah. sent us a nice outline yeah. of the epidemics in history from Chicago's earliest and That'd be a great place to just jump right into. Okay. Chicago, throughout the 19th century, had periodic epidemics of different diseases. And the first epidemic occurred even before Chicago was incorporated in 1833. In 1832, a boat full of soldiers came to reinforce Fort Dearborn, and they carried cholera with them. When the cholera arrived in Chicago, the there were only 300 people in Chicago at the time. Citizens were so afraid that they all left the city. Wow. Soon after that, Chicago instituted its first Board of Health in 1835 because epidemics were a fact of life in the 19th century. Joe, wasn't it true that the, the soldiers were coming to this region to fight the Black Hawk War, but by that time they got here, the war was over? That's my understanding. Yeah, they weren't really needed. So basically, thanks a lot, soldiers. I mean, <laughs> uh, I think they were from Buffalo, New York. I could be wrong on that. but I don't know. Right, and then cholera is an infectious disease that's waterborne and causes diarrhea and leads to dehydration and potentially death if untreated. And pretty dangerous in those times with the medical expertise, which was limited compared to what we have today. Yeah, yeah. Of course, that wasn't the only epidemic that, disease that we had to deal with. There was dysentery, scarlet fever, typhoid, and smallpox. And Joe, it's interesting that Chicago wasn't incorporated as a city. I think it was 1837. Yeah. The Board of Health was formed two years prior. Yeah. That kind of tells you what the priorities were on the frontier. Yes. I mean, even, even uh, the first basic hospitals in Chicago were built around that time. I just picture an outpost, really, of just muddy streets and lousy water systems. If there was, in the 1830s, probably not decent water treatment like we think of it as today. 
no, there was no water treatment. It was they, right. They could took it right out of the lake. Well, uh, if no, and if no one's living there, that's fine. But if it's um, three hundred people, it's not a problem. Yeah. When Chicago gets larger by the 1850s, and there's no sewers in the city, everything runs down the middle of the street, it goes into the Chicago River, the Chicago River gets polluted. So that's not a problem if you're taking your water out of Lake Michigan until what runs from the river goes so far out into the lake that the lake is polluted. And that's what happened in Chicago. And we're also forgetting, because we live in the 21st century, horses were everywhere. And the horses have a way of leaving reminders that they've no, been there. They so do. all that's winding up in the river, too. That's exactly, yeah. And it's a long story, but that's why Chicagoans eventually had to reverse the flow of the Chicago River and send all the sewage the other direction. Of course, one of the great fathers of Chicago that made his fortune building that sewer, or at least jacking up the buildings, I believe, was Pullman. George Pullman, that's right. Yeah. I believe that you could literally have your dinner in a hotel while they were jacking up the hotel. You wouldn't know the difference, yes. <laughs> George, George Pullman came from upstate New York, and he had gotten learned to do this during the construction of the Erie Canal. When he came to Chicago, I don't remember how many of these jacks he would put, he put them under a, a very large hotel and very slowly jacked it up. You'd come into your hotel one day, the next day this would be a little bit higher. You'd have another step to go up and it gradually, gradually picked it up a long way. And then they were able to build sewers under the streets. I think it was almost 15 feet at least. Yeah, so. it could be, yeah, I don't remember. Uh, yeah, I know as much, and it was as much as fifteen feet in some locations where they raised the the grade <laughs> yeah. of the streets and yeah. the sidewalks, and and that helped a lot. But still, as the city grew, the sewage just became unmanageable, especially when there was a heavy rain. Then it would flood into Lake Michigan a long way out, and they put these intake pipes further and further out into the lake. That's when the water tower was built. In 1869. But in the long run, they had to reverse the, the river. And that wasn't completely solved until the sanitary and ship canal was built and it was opened in 1900. Joe, did any of that come up during the White City? I mean, since you had all the great mines in Chicago in 1893, was there an exhibit or, or a, a, people, a think tank of people at the fair that talked about an engineering problem such as that? At the uh, exposition, we're on just about everything. And engineering was a very important part of it. So I can only assume that. But it's not a real sexy topic, you know. Gentlemen, let's talk about the human waste. Well, I think the ladies would probably keep going. And yeah. That. I mean, the, the organizers of the fair were worried about supplying clean water to the uh, and they actually worked out a scheme to pipe in water all the way from Waukesha, Wisconsin. Oh, wow. Yeah, they built a pipeline from Waukesha to Chicago. And they advertised their drinking water as being the best you could get because it came from Wisconsin. Wow. I just thought the only water was like, you know, Pabst Blue Ribbon water. I mean, I know that. There was a, lot of, there was a lot of German beer at the fair. 
Oh, I'm I'm sure there was. I'm sure yeah. it was very good. I'm sure it was very good too. Oh, I was it was great. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe, I was reading a book about Juliet Kinsey by Ed Dirk and Keating, yeah. And I was reading that in the 1850s, Juliet uh, Kinsey, I mean, if you were smart, you would drink bottled water oftentimes because that was your insurance against cholera and smallpox. And this was what the wealthy of Chicago would do. They would stockpile water, the smart ones did anyway. Well, everywhere, like in Europe and in America, the colonial America, certainly alcoholic beverages were favored because they protected you against diseases. So beer, cider, whiskey, they were thought to be safer. We read about alcohol consumption in the 19th century, which is high. Part of it was because of that. I believe I was reading about John Adams that he would have several glasses of cider, the hard stuff, huh? every day. I mean, that was just what you did if you grew up in New England. That's right. <laughs> he lived to be 90 years old, so... <laughs> Now, there was a lot of myths about the water system that I came across, and you mentioned it in your outline that there's a myth about 90,000 people in Chicago dying of typhoid cholera in 1885. And I don't know where this got started. It's an urban legend, and it's, it's even been in the Tribune. I mean, there was a, a typhoid epidemic in Chicago in 1885, and I don't know why, but somehow this figure got loose of 90,000 Chicagoans dying. I mean, 90,000 is staggering. That's 12% of the population. Yeah. So I just want to say that if you come across that story, it's not true. About 1,000 people died, not 90,000. I believe there was also a cholera epidemic when they built the INM Canal in the late 1840s, early 1850s. Yeah. Was was that also just because of the conditions, perhaps the workers? Probably. You know, this happened several times in Chicago history that workers were drawn to the city because of their job. And some of them were sick when they got here. That's one way that diseases travel, especially in a city like Chicago, which had so much immigration. That was one of the explanations for the uh, smallpox epidemic of 1893. A lot of workers came to work on the Columbian Exposition and they came from all over. Some of them even came from Europe. And one of Chicago's leading doctors, Arthur Reynolds, he thought that some of these workers came from Europe, got on the train in New York and came right to Chicago and brought smallpox with them. We don't really know, but it's not unlikely that epidemic did come from workers who came to Chicago for jobs. So this was uh, perhaps the construction of of the White City? Some of these workers were infected? Yes. Infected workers came to the White City. Oh, geez. And the fair opened, was it May 1st? Yes. 1893? You know, when I wrote this book about Chicago in 1893, I wanted to write about all the wonderful things that happened. And then I came across this smallpox epidemic and I said, well, this is not such a wonderful thing. But actually, 
kind of the way it was because it was the last smallpox epidemic. By 1893, Chicagoans had pretty much figured out how to deal with epidemics. And so they, they were very thorough about dealing with this one. They knew where it came from. They knew how to handle it. And that was, that was pretty much the end of it. They had a very strong health department and vaccination campaign. And Chicago hasn't dealt with many epidemics until, well, here we are again, but that's another story. Did they deal with it in quietly or was it sort of under the radar? Uh, or did they put, you know, things in newspapers about oh, yeah. getting tested or? No, it, it wasn't quiet. They, they, they were very public about their efforts. Testing was not much of an issue. Unlike the virus we have today, smallpox had a vaccine. There was a vaccine for smallpox. Oh, okay. okay. So the question was not how to treat it, but getting people vaccinated. Mm. And a lot of people weren't vaccinated, especially because Chicago had so many new immigrants who weren't vaccinated. So the Chicago health inspectors went around the city into the worst slums, vaccinating. And there was a lot of resistance against vaccination. You know, we, we have our anti-vaxxers today. They had them then. The immigrants especially were not just afraid of vaccination, but they were distrustful of the government in general because they came from countries where governments were not necessarily out to help you, but they were oppressive. And they feared any representative of the government. And if uh, somebody showed up and wanted to you know, poke you with needles, they didn't like that. So there are lots of stories about them hiding, stashing their children away or sending them off so they wouldn't be vaccinated. But in the long run, they did thousands and thousands of, of vaccinations. Now, I imagine the police or the health health department had broad powers to do that. Yes. Yeah. The health inspectors had a lot of powers and some of them were retired policemen who would oh, okay. help enforce these, these. Another thing that they had to do besides vaccination was that many of these immigrants uh, in, in the slums worked in, in the garment business sewing clothing for, for companies who would hire them out to do that, do that. They did it at home. Okay. Now, if these people had smallpox, the clothing that they manufactured would be contaminated. So health inspectors would go to these, I guess you could call them sweatshops. And if somebody there was infected, they would confiscate clothing that they had made, which was a loss of income for the poor person who made it, but they had no choice. They, there's a story of one health inspector coming to a person's house and there was a, a dead child there oh my goodness. who had, had smallpox. And he said, I'm going to have to take this coat that you're working on. And he said, well, you're going to have to give me $16 for this coat because that's what it's worth to me. Uh, 
they said, well, we're going to come back tomorrow and confiscate it. But by the time they came back, the coat had disappeared. So who knows where he sold it. But that was another big issue, confiscating things like that. And, 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 and another reason that immigrants, people who lived in these poor areas were distrustful of the authorities. Did they have quarantines at the World's Fair or around the World's Fair? I mean, literal quarantines of folks? The, the smallpox epidemic really didn't peak until after the fair was over. Okay. I think it hardly affected the uh, people who came to see it. There were quarantines after that. There's a story of, of a jail where somebody brought his buddy in because the guy was really drunk and said, could you just let him sleep here tonight? Next morning, they found out that the guy was dead from smallpox. Oh, geez. They didn't release the prisoners but they had to quarantine to the, um, the jail. This was Harrison Street Jail, which was the largest in Chicago. Wow. Yeah. Now I know Patrick has a good smallpox story. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> as, as one does. <laughs> well, I mean, the smallpox was pretty scary too. I was looking at the CDC website and it's a, it's a rash. It usually early stages, it, you have a source in your mouth and throat and then it spreads uh, when they're coughed or sneezed and droplets from the air and nose. And uh, you then get a rash on your skin and have scabs and the fluid can also contain the varroa virus. Mm-hmm. And it can be spread through materials or like you, the example of the coat that mm-hmm. they were working on. And that of course then brings up, there's a sort of urban history that, that you hear about whites giving Native Americans smallpox mm-hmm. by giving them infected blankets. Yeah, yeah. And a friend of mine asked me about that when he, when I knew we were going to do this podcast. And so I looked it up, and apparently there's really only one known case of that. Mm-hmm. And it was this Lord Jeffrey Amherst who was commanding British forces in North America in the final battles of the French and Indian War that was from 1754 to 1763. Let's see, how, how do they say this? His name became associated then with these stories of infected blankets and germ warfare because he was at the siege of Fort Pitt in Pittsburgh by Chief Pontiac's forces during the summer of 1763. And they had a few men in the fort that were infected with smallpox. It was a pretty dire situation and he wrote a letter saying that he was going to send infected blankets and handkerchiefs to the Indians surrounding the fort as a, an attempt to maybe break down their siege of the fort. Mm. Now, there was no confirmation that that actually worked or that he did it. And so that's kind of the, the one documented case that it was potentially tried as a way to transmit the disease. Now, the Native Americans end up getting smallpox through contact with the whites. Oh, yeah. Probably in many other ways as well. But it, it never uh, changed that, that particular situation. No, I, that's interesting to know because I've heard that story too. But um... Yeah, and we'll have, we'll have more details on that uh, on our website and some links to, Good. to that history. Great. Joe, did other cities that you know of have these outbreaks? I mean, it wasn't unique to Chicago. 
don't know too much about that, but yeah, New York had epidemics too. I haven't heard of any other smallpox epidemic in 1893, although I was saying that some people thought that the smallpox came in from immigrant workers. Uh, another theory was that it might have come from Indiana because there were some smallpox outbreaks in Indiana in 1892, but we don't really know. But yeah, I mean, if it was in cities in Indiana in 1892, it was all over. The one thing I have learned from a lot of study is you can't trust the Hoosiers. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I was born in Indiana. I was too. Were you? Uh, yeah. Where were you? Joe, Joe, where are you from? I'm from Indiana Harbor. Okay. Well, uh, my daughter went to IU, so I'm just kidding. I know you. And my, my wife went to IU as well. Well, and I was born in Bloomington. That's where my parents met, so. No kidding. Oh, okay. My brother lives in Bloomington. Ah, very good. But there was a, there was a big epidemic, flu epidemic of influenza in the uh, 1891 1892 and 1893 across the country where they had various outbreaks of the flu that killed quite a few people. And I think that was the impetus to then start to come up with the vaccines for influenza. Uh-huh. That was before the big one in 1918. Right. As we've learned recently, it's global travel that makes these things spread quickly. And the, uh, the more common and the easier that it is, the more likely these diseases are going to get around. Do you think that historians of Chicago history, when they look back on our COVID-19 situation, be interesting to see that what parallels, if any, they see? Because it's been 102 years since Chicago really had to deal with the pandemic. Yeah. Obviously, the 19th century dealt with it all the time. I, I think we just got complacent as a society because we didn't really have to deal with it for a century. Yeah, yeah. I think complacent is the right word, which is understandable. If it takes a hundred years for another epidemic, we'll probably be, be complacent by then, but at least in the short term, people should be prepared. It is interesting though, to me as a as a Chicagoan in twenty twenty, I have a lot, and we all have a lot in common with the Chicagoans of the 1850s because there were no shots, inoculations for what we're dealing with today. This COVID-19, there is no right. way to protect your body against it. Right. So we're living in 19th century Chicago. Yes, that's a good point. And what I learned from just what you told me, I'm fascinated that the 1893 smallpox epidemic that they were able to inoculate against it. I mean, to me, that's remarkable. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but you think of the 19th century, when you think of science, it's not always that impressive when it comes to medical science. Yeah. No, that's a very good point because they had pretty much had to do with what we, we're doing. They just social distancing. A lot of people just got out of the city and uh, isolating people who were sick. And I guess in rural America, it was easier to self-isolate if you were on the farm. 
You, I don't think you were changed very much. Right, right, right. You know, before the railroad, I, I was probably really easy to self-isolate. Well, they say in the in the nineteenth century, there are many people who live their whole lives within thirty miles of their home. Well, thirty miles on a horse—that's a long ride. That's yeah, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you're not used to it. Yeah. There were probably diseases that came up the Mississippi on the riverboats from New Orleans. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. That was a probably a very good way for diseases to travel. And also there's a great tradition of diseases and boats in the sense that I know in New York Harbor, uh, many times ships would be quarantined for a long time. I guess the classic date is 40 days. Because if, if passengers were sick, they just put up the flag, the quarantine flag, and that was it. Mm -hmm. Nobody's coming in. Mm -hmm. That was the default in the maritime world. Mm -hmm. So again, I think we've just gotten away from it. Yeah. What's that old saying about it? Well, if you forget history, you have to repeat it. Yes. Yeah. I was reading Samuel Pepe's The Great Diarist. Of, about the plague? About the plague, yeah. And he's very descriptive of how scary it was. Yeah, and as, as, as tough as what we're going through, it's nothing like the plague. Right. Yeah. They didn't know that rats were transporting the no, fleet. They didn't, they didn't know where it came from. I heard a historian talk about how our urban landscape has, has been designed and changed throughout history by plagues and disasters. Every time we survive one of these, Joe, we, we build the infrastructure differently. And then again, another plague comes lying. We build aqueducts or we build sewers. It seems that we kind of learn by plague, by disaster, our urban landscape keeps evolving with the latest. And I'm sure with this COVID-19, can you imagine going to a Cubs game now, Joe? I know, I know. I don't know when I want to do that again. A couple of Chicago physicians wrote long descriptions of how they had to deal with the smallpox epidemic. And I mean, they're great. That's where I got some of these stories I've been telling you. Joe, I just wanted to tell you that I just ordered your book on Amazon on uh, 1893, so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to reading it. It's nice to read something very interesting during these times. Well, we, we should mention Joe's books. He's got two books. His first one was Chicago's Greatest Year, 1893, and he's holding it up for us on the Zoom, uh, The White City and the Birth of Modern Metropolis. And then his second book is Chicago Transformed, World War I and the Windy City. Yes, and, and Joe, on your uh, White City book, you take more of a what's going on in the city. It's not just all about the White City. It's about Chicago that year, correct? The White City is only one chapter. Okay. In fact, that was the idea of the book. Everybody knows about the White City. Uh, the reason I wrote it was to, to point out that a lot of amazing Chicago things happened in that year. Started on what they were, but um, by the book. Most definitely. And well, this has been great, Joe. And we really appreciate you taking the time to. No, I love talking to you guys. It was a lot of fun.
Thanks again to Joe Gostaitis for talking to us. Joe's a great friend of the Whitney City Historians, and he's a tremendous historian, and we really appreciate him taking the time to talk with us. Good to talk to Joe Gostaitis. And we should again mention his books, Chicago Transformed and Chicago's Greatest Year, 1893. We'll hopefully get a chance to talk to him again when we get uh, deeper into the Laying the Foundation series and get back to that after this special episode. Don't sneeze, cough, or spit. You know, uh, Patrick, I love the autumn in Chicago, but the autumn of 1918, starting in September, was really a bad time to be here. Yes. As we will discuss. We should talk to that. I pulled a lot of information from the Chicago Tribune archives, which, by the way, if you have a Chicago Public Library card, you can go online and log in and then get to their newspaper archives and pull up Chicago Tribune articles going back to the 1860s. Wow. And so that was where we got a lot of this information. So that's a pretty handy source to then do some advanced searches or other searches to find these articles. So why don't I set the scene a little bit about what Chicago was like in 1918? Okay. World War I was raging in Europe. That had started in August of 1914 and went to November of 1918. The Russian Revolution had been going on for over a year uh, or more, and that February and October revolutions of 1917 had occurred. The Tsar, July 1918, he and his wife and their children were executed by Russian revolutionaries. Yeah, the Romanovs, very disturbing time. We only had 48 states. Women had yet to have a right to vote. And the president was Woodrow Wilson. He was in the middle of his second term. Unemployment was at 1.4%, and a first-class stamp cost three cents, if anybody uses stamps anymore. And Patrick, you know, I have an interest in aviation. That, of course, was the year that a semblance of an airmail service began between New York and Washington, D.C. That's right. And musician Ray Charles was born. And daylight savings had gone into effect for the first time. There was a Kentucky Derby. Ironically, the winner's name was Exterminator. It was a lanky chestnut three-year-old from Lexington, Kentucky. And June 8th, a year prior, in, on August 21st, 2017, there was a solar eclipse that crossed the United States from Washington State to Florida. You know, what's interesting about that, Patrick, is in history, Eclipses are often signs of great change, usually omens and not always good ones. And again, we don't think like that in, the, in our scientific age, but maybe that eclipse was a harbinger of things to come, like World War I, which began in at least the Americans' involvement of it began April 6, 1917. That's right. And of course, the events that we're going to discuss autumn of 1918, a pretty cataclysmic time in this country. Well, we talked about this, I think, earlier. Tecumseh and Tesquatawa, his brother, known as the Shawnee Prophet, noted a eclipse among their followers and alliance to fight the Americans. It was a harbinger of the War of 1812. And, of course, William the Conqueror, the Norman 
usurper, I guess, if you're English, he saw Halley's Comet in 1066, and he took that as a sign that, yes, he should invade England. And if you go to Bayou in, in France, they have the famous Bayou Tapestry, which is sort of like a cartoon that describes the, the goings-on that led to that invasion. There you can see it plain as day is Halley's Comet in the sky. Wow. Interesting. You're right. So celestial events and history, there's an interesting um, combination. Well, speaking of stars, the Chicago Cubs made it to the World Series that year. Yeah, well, we know what happened after that World Series. Well, remind yeah. everybody, Chris, what, what was the outcome? Uh, well, they lost to the Boston Red Sox. Four games to two. Yeah. So at Fenway. The Cubs were paying in Kaminsky at that point. So they had to uh, go another, what, was it 80 years before they won the World Series? In Chicago? Yeah, 2016. Yeah, so. So that's what kind of what was going on in Chicago. The other thing we should talk about, Chris, is the impact of this 1918-1919 Spanish influenza epidemic. Yeah. My grandparents lived through it. My wife's father was a young child during the influenza outbreak. And going back, it affected everybody, more or less. The general numbers that are usually given is about a 500 million people were infected and that it killed 20 to 50 million people, basically about 1% of the population of the world. And that included an estimated 675,000 in the United States alone. I think you said it was like more people than died in World War II from the United States. Actually, more people in the United States died of influenza in that year, 1918, then died in both World War One and World War Two. Wow, that's extraordinary. Now, remember, too, the U.S. was also late getting into both of those wars. Yes. Whereas the British and French were thrown into it right away. But then the other thing that was interesting is that life expectancy in 1918 for the United States plummeted by a dozen years because of the impact of that influenza. Wow. Spanish influenza, which is a misnomer, is a respiratory virus that affects the nose, throat, and bronchial tubes, and sometimes the lungs. It's part of the H1N1 avian flu, so it's attributed to a bird flu, but it became a global outbreak, and those viruses evolve and change from year to year. So the symptoms were basically always about the same terms, a sudden onset with chills, Severe headache, pains in the back or elsewhere, general malaise, flushed face, some soreness of the throat, and fever of from 101 to 104 degrees Fahrenheit with a rather slow pulse. Usually the crisis had subsided after two or three days with a rapid and complete recovery. I know one of the things that the 1918 influenza did that was different than this COVID-19 pandemic we're living in is in this modern pandemic, one can be a carrier and walk around and function normally for weeks at a time. Yeah. Whereas when you got the influenza, it dropped you where you stood. There was no guesswork who was sick and who wasn't. Right. There was a couple articles I found in the Tribune archives, a shipping office for, I think, one of the railways of 125 people, 34 of them came down with the flu in one day and were sent home. 34. Now, have you ever had the influenza strain, Patrick? 
I don't think I have. Well, I had it one year and I'll tell you what, it knocked my socks off. I was 25 years old, healthy as a horse. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to some friends at work and I found out later, they told me that as I was talking to them, the blood in my face was draining out. I looked like a ghost. Wow. And they said, Chris, you got to go. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Because it hadn't registered with me yet. Yeah. But, and I have since found out that you can almost narrow down when one gets influenza to the second. It hits you like, boom, like a light switch. Yeah. And I, I was wow. so sick. I was sick for a week and you couldn't do anything. You couldn't concentrate. You couldn't watch television. Your mind was racing because you have the fever and whatnot. Yeah. I remember taking a shower and the water felt like bullets hitting my skin. Oh my God. And after that, I said, that's it. Every year since I've gotten a flu shot. That's just a relative, a mild strain of this 1918 influenza that we're discussing. Well, and that was the thing that was so scary about the Spanish influenza. Usually the influenza would attack the youngest and the oldest people yes. in the population. So infants and senior citizens or elders were more at risk. But with the Spanish flu, it severely impacted the ages from 20 to 40 years old. Yes, People who are healthy and strong and live in life to the fullest. Yes. And so it was surprising how many of those succumbed to influenza. And the physicians of the time were helpless against this powerful agent of influenza. Right. One physician writes that patients with seemingly ordinary influenza would rapidly develop the most vicious type of pneumonia that has ever been seen. Later, when cryonesis appeared in patients... It is simply to struggle for air until they suffocate. Uh, another physician recalls that influenza patients died struggling to clear their airways of a blood-tinged froth that sometimes gushed from their nose and mouth. Their accounts say that you couldn't tell the difference between African Americans, whites, or brown people. They all turned this shade of purple near the very end, oftentimes just a short time before they were to die from the whole thing because pneumonia would usually then set in and that would be what would kill you yeah it's it's terrifying yeah yes well chris didn't you have a family member that died of influenza in 1918 yes my mother's grandmother she died in kells ireland that was the name of the town in county meath well, obviously the influenza swept through in 1919 and it took her and she was not you know, I say great grandmother, but she was probably 40 years old or 40, 45. And my grandmother was left without a mother at the age of 10. Oh, wow. With four other siblings. So it just goes to show you that this affected the world. Again, this is Ireland. And yeah. I started asking people here in Chicago when we were discussing this topic, if anyone had any stories in the family. And uh, quite a few people told me, yes, you know, and so-and-so or great uncle Jim, it affected just about everybody. And if it didn't affect your family, you knew someone who was affected. Well, and I had posted to our Facebook group, the Windy City Historians, a little bit of the research 
of this pandemic in 1918. And several people commented back on that post that they had had family members that had succumbed to that illness back in 1918. Honestly, I was a little surprised, but a couple of people came back right away, three or four, that said that it impacted their family. We had three basic waves in the United States, starting in July of 1918, which was mild, then October of 1918, which was more severe, and then again in February of 1919. It's interesting because those months are very different from one another. February is not July, and October is somewhere in between. So in those cases, it, it didn't seem like weather was an issue. Right, but it was compounded by the fact that we were in World War I. I mean, that was one of the problems of probably why this outbreak was so bad, was these men tightly housed and training and working together and fighting together with World War I going on. Or as they said, the Great War. Yes, the war to end all wars. Yes, right. That really became a nice incubator or way for the disease to be transmitted much more quickly. People were traveling all over the world and going back and forth and caused the outbreak to be probably more dramatic than it might have otherwise been. I also did some research on where the flu came from, this so-called Spanish flu in 1918 and 1919. And apparently there was multiple outbreaks in years prior there was some influenza in the winter of 1915-1916 at a military base uh, staging area in northwest France. There was also outbreaks in the U.S. and Midwest. There were outbreak reports in Chicago Tribune in 1916 and 1917 of influenza. I've also talked to a few friends that have been in the military, and their immediate reaction when I was telling them about doing this podcast was, oh no, it started in Kansas because there were actually some early outbreaks of the flu in Kansas at the military camps there that were training for World War I. I think I might have heard that. Just jumping in here back at the Waveland Island Studios, did some additional research, and the origins of influenza in Kansas. They had outbreaks in January and February that were noted by their local doctor, Dr. Loring Miner, in Haskell County as it was a very isolated area, and he recognized it was an unusual, a highly unusual case of influenza that passed with a lot of the residents within two or three days. At the end of February, several people had traveled the 300 miles back and forth between Haskell County and Funson, Kansas, where Fort Riley is today, at that time stationed 56,000 troops. On March 4th, the very first outbreak at the fort was reported. And so Spanish flu, which maybe should be called Kansas or Haskell flu, might have originated in Haskell County, Kansas in early 1918. Okay, back to our story. But again, this is why there are pandemics and epidemics. You're going to get it from somewhere because it'll sweep across the country. Another signature of these pandemics that is startling is the speed at which they spread. Yes. And I know the COVID-19, the speed is unbelievable around the world. So too with the influenza of 1918. And as we talked about, there had been a pandemic of influenza in the 1890s. 
There's others we talk about, and then you can go all the way back to the plague in medieval times. We should also talk about, it's been called the Spanish flu for over 100 years, but that's a misnomer. Yeah, and it's not really fair to Spain either, because if anything, the reason it was called the Spanish flu is because Spain, which was neutral during World War One, yep. they had a free press, open and free press, whereas if that was a German paper or even the United States or a British paper, there's no way that flu would be discussed because of censorship. Right, and they thought it unpatriotic to talk about things were terrible like this as it might give away information to the enemy. And uh, I'm pretty sure most of the Spanish royalty family did not die of the flu, but were a severe enough case that then was reported in the news and, and therefore in the press. Also, it was weird when it became sort of the common parlance for this disease. People were very strange. The British newspapers began to attach meaning to it that didn't exist. Like, well, the reason it's a Spanish flu is because, well, the rather dusty climate, don't you know? And here in England, the, the moisture would prevent any sort of flu-like symptoms. I mean, ridiculous articles speculated on issues. Like that. Yeah, but... You know, Chris, I've also heard reports, though, now with the coronavirus that it propagates more easily in low humidity environments. So yes. there's some parallels, and it may have been they didn't have the science to prove it absolutely, but there was definitely some uh, sort of home remedies or basic approaches that did seem to help alleviate, but they didn't have the science to explain it for sure why or why not. And then science, healthcare-wise, they would speak in terms of germs, and they knew what bacteria was, but they did not yet know exactly what a virus was. And those were just coming into the nomenclature and an understanding of what a virus was, but they couldn't yet see it until I think the electron microscope really brought that to the forefront, which were you know built in the 1930s. Right, and we talked about this a little bit just off mic, Patrick. How? Yeah. Dr. Lister was very popular in like the 1880s. He had this theory that germs caused sickness and most of the medical community thought he was a quack. Yeah. In fact, uh, President Garfield was shot by an anarchist and had this assassination taken place today, Garfield would have probably spent a couple of days in the hospital and he would have been, been out. But it was the doctors examining the bullet wounds with their bare hands that actually gave the president septus and that wound up killing him. So there just, there wasn't a good understanding of bacteria in lighter parts of the 1880s, 1890s. And to give people a sense of the time frame, this is Garfield was our 20th president, which I just looked up and he died on March 4th, 1881. Right. And I believe he lingered for weeks and weeks after he was shot. And I think I've read an account of that, too, that the doctors didn't have the process of washing their hands before seeing a patient like it is today with surgeons. Different doctors reached into his body to try to remove the bullet and they never did get it all out. Right. Right. And they were just they just didn't think about washing their hands and it just never infection. It didn't occur to anybody. Yeah. 
Yeah. And of course, Dr. Lister, who was the so-called quack, he invented Listerine, thus the name. That's an interesting story as well. Uh, what happens to the family that pursues Listerine, they wind up starting an empire. And that's Albert Lambert, who later becomes the patron of Charles Lindbergh. So it's an interesting story from bacteria to flying to Paris, but there is a connection. Oh, really? And is this, I just looked up on Wikipedia, this is, is it Joseph Lister, who was yes. a British physician? Yes. He came up with the concept, at least in this country, there was no buy-in as to his theory. Doctors did not take it seriously at all. Hmm. Yes, it says he's a pioneer of antiseptic surgery and promoted the idea of sterile surgery, sterilizing instruments, and using carbolic acid, known as fentanyl, to sterilize instruments and to clean wounds. Basically applying Pasteur, Louis Pasteur's advances in microbiology. Interesting. This is the era we're in where 1918, they're scientific about many things, but centuries change. It doesn't mean that it's like flicking a switch and all of a sudden everyone different or more modern. Yeah. There's still horses in the streets in 1918 delivering ice and coal, and there aren't a lot of cars. No, and let's just pause for a moment. I mean, this is how in 1918, even though we were in the, in the 20th century, we really had one foot in the 19th because we were using horses in, in war. Absolutely. And they were sending additional veterinarians with the troop ships to keep an eye on the horses that were sh they were shipping over to Europe for the war effort. Yeah. Because the, f the horses were coming down with the flu. Oh, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. And of, uh, again, that's like your Jeep getting sick. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's no recall on the horses, though. And most people could not afford an automobile at, at that point. Right. Uh, or they rode streetcars and trains. Well, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, will the federal government do more and or are they letting the states run it? And there seems to be some confusion in our current 2020 period. For this Spanish flu, when it came along in 1918 and 1919, nationally, the general surgeon, blue, as in the color, designated the Red Cross yeah. as the central agency to carry on the battle against the disease. Interesting. A private institution. Yes. You know, the Red Cross was a much larger organization back then. Two decades earlier, there was a serious influenza outbreak in 1891, 1892, and 1893. Also, because of World War One, health departments and some of the mechanisms were already in place, probably helped ensure that they most likely had the experts and the staff to really best handle the whole situation. Because there was no CDC in the United States. There was no umbrella organization. And they would provide a lot of support for that here in Illinois. The head of Illinois Health Department, Dr. C. St. Clair Drake, he decided, I guess October 8th, to leave the action to close the schools or public amusements to the almost 3,000 local health authorities. 
I was impressed at how fast the leaders in 1918 took this on. They, meaning the local governments, they took it seriously right away, fought against the battle. Again, going back to the name of this podcast, there were broadsides put up in posters and the media became part of the solution. And and the local health officials tried to educate the community as to the dangers. Because as you said, it was amazing how well Dr. Robertson, who was head of the health department for the city of Chicago, some of the other healthcare professionals jumped on this thing once it became serious. Now, interestingly enough, they did not close the schools in 1918. They talked about closing the schools, but they never did it in uh, 18. The schools remained open in most areas. I think there was a northern suburb that closed. I think a couple of them did that are around Great Lakes Naval Training Center. And they did close some of the schools up there. And I believe also Evanston closed the schools where Chicago kept them open, thinking the students were better off in school than out and about on the streets or, or unattended. Parents were working, which a lot of them were. They did close the saloons. Their word, not mine. They did leave open bowling alleys, pool halls, and some saloons. Though if a crowd gathered, they could be shut down. Well, they didn't have Netflix in 1918, Patrick, but they did have moving picture houses, as I recall from reading the newspapers. Well, theaters were definitely closed, whether it was a play or a moving picture. Yeah, right in restaurants. And if you look at the photographs and you're right, everybody was wearing a mask. Yeah. There was big ads in the paper to insist on people wear a mask and people could be arrested for not, um, or for spitting and coughing and sneezing. Of course, the cabarets and the nightclubs were all shut down. Mostly it was dance halls or large gathering places. A lot of the sporting events were stopped as well. Except church, as I recall. The churches remained open. Well, except in Evanston. They closed the churches and the schools. And there was some outcry from one of the Catholic priests about closing the churches would be difficult on morale for the war and spirituality and some reinforcement from the church or religion at this time would be the most important, was his argument. Compare that to today where a Tampa preacher was arrested for ignoring the shelter-in-place order and got on his soapbox and said that God would protect him or something like that. Yeah, I saw a report yesterday where they interviewed a woman coming out of church, and I'm not sure where it was. Uh, She had a bit of a southern accent, said she had no qualms about having gone to church. She wouldn't catch anything because she was bathed in the the blood of Jesus. Well, That reminds me of our podcast that will be coming in the future about the Great Chicago Fire, where we talked to Bill Pack, and he talks about one of the churches was in the fire zone, and a woman said, well, God will protect it, and then a minute later, the church went up in flames. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He can't protect everybody. Right. Or she, you know, however you describe God. It's just, again, the parallels between... Uh, 1918 and 2020 are eerily similar. Yes, right. There was also police were given the authority to break up crowds. And if you spat in front of a cop, 
they were going to haul you down to the station. I imagine like today, they wouldn't want to do all the paperwork. They'd give you a warning first, but if you continued, I'm sure they'd... Maybe a warning or a whack. <laughs> In those days... Yeah, with the nightstick. A whack might not be unusual, right? No doubt about it. And how about this, Patrick? This sounds familiar. All surgeries, except emergency surgeries, were banned. Efforts were made to cope with shortage of nurses. Yeah. Requests made that physicians sent all women over 40 willing to serve as housekeepers in affected homes to the health department for registration and references to the Nurses Association. This is happening today. And then there was quarantines that were going on. Right. And, and quarantines were very common in American history. I mean, there were many ships in, in harbor that hoist a flag if someone was ill on board and the ship would have to wait in quarantine. That was more typical than not in history. Ironically, September 19th, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, someone by the name of Franklin Roosevelt, Patrick, I don't know if that name rings at all. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right? F- yeah. DR. Yeah, he catches... They call it the pneumonia. He gets it from Spanish flu. He was aboard a ship with several cases of it during a voyage. He was on a Navy ship and he convalesced at the home of his mother, Mrs. James Roosevelt. Of course, that's in Hyde Park. In New York. So again, this virus was indiscriminate. The reason I mention it is like 102 years later, there's an aircraft carrier in the Pacific named after Franklin Roosevelt's cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, and there's an outbreak of COVID-19 on the ship, and the captain is removed from duty because he alerts in a public manner the fact that there are hundreds of sailors on his ship who are in danger. So the irony is ridiculous. Right, and parallels the outbreak on the uh, cruise ships as well. There were no airports, so ships and Great Lakes Naval Training Base, that was the O'Hare Airport of Chicago in the sense that a lot of people coming to these bases from Europe, hither and yon. And so obviously these would be hotspots. So quarantine orders were issued to report for all influenza cases. You know, at that point, dance halls were a big thing, cabarets, uh, places where people could go out and dance. Of course, this is a time where there's no television, there's radio. Uh, But generally, a lot of the entertainment was live, either music or dancing, that kind of thing. So the Blue Jackets, as they called them, would go off base for entertainment, and they would, you know, go dancing. And there was a couple stories, one story in particular, where a group of co-eds from Lake Forest College were then quarantined because they had been socializing with some of the Blue Jackets and some of them caught the influenza and they did a quarantine of them in their, I assume, dorm room or wherever the house, boarding house where they are living. Patrick, we should probably talk about when influenza was first detected in the Chicago region. Yes. I was looking at the numbers. The COVID-19 outbreak has, believe it or not, a lot of people in the northern suburbs around Great Lakes. I mean, it's just a kind of a strange coincidence, but the city was not the epicenter of the influenza. It came in through the military base, which makes sense, and then migrated south. Right. September 6th, Spanish flu begins at Great Lakes. And then it got to Chicago 
by the 22nd of September and more or less peaks around Thanksgiving. But it is interesting how it did kind of roar into our region in the warmer months. Yeah. So the first person gets it September 6th at Great Lakes Naval Training Station. By September 19th, 10% of the base had it. Okay. And two days later, 931 sailors were added to the sick list. So you went from one to, to 931 in a matter of two weeks. Was the closest outbreak in Chicago that we know of. From Great Lakes. And then it took off like a bomb. Yeah. Well, and that's what we've seen with coronavirus, yeah. COVID-19 here. And if we weren't staying at home, we'd have a much more rapid peak and it would go through the population much more rapidly. And that's the problem is it would overwhelm the healthcare systems. And so the idea of bending the curve or flattening the curve. Something we're trying to lower. We're trying to lower the curve in our era. That means that whole process takes longer, but ideally makes it a little more manageable. And even just one statistic from this article, between September 12th and October 11th, 1918, Mm -hmm. there were 9,623 cases of influenza at Great Lakes, and that led to 924 deaths. And one eyewitness, one chaplain wrote, remember, I started to keep a record of the number of deaths at which I was present, but found it impossible to continue. Uh, another person recalled, morgues were packed almost to the ceiling with bodies stacked one on top of another. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Patrick, Great Lakes Naval Training Station. Yes. It opened in 1911. And there was a great article in the Chicago Reader by Jeff Nichols called The Ghosts of the Great Lakes. And it was, it was a fantastic article. And reading it, I didn't realize how big it was. I mean, it was 12,000 acres. There were 775 buildings on campus. And such Chicago luminaries as George Hallis went through Great Lakes and the comedian Jack Benny. And of course, the station was within walking distance of Waukegan. And what was interesting was the first report of influenza at Great Lakes Sailors from Boston brought the virus with them to Chicago, hmm. to, to the northern suburbs. As if winning the World Series wasn't enough, Boston had to send some of the influenza to us? <laughs> right. Well, it, it, what's interesting is the Black Hawk War, that, and we talk about this with Joe, it was soldiers from Buffalo, New York, that brought that particular outbreak to our region. And again, it seems the East Coast is out to get us when it comes to these pandemics, the Great Lakes outbreak began because of the Boston sailors. But I guess in a world at war, that's probably inevitable. So by September 21st, there were 205 cases of influenza at the Lewis Institute in Chicago and who were put under quarantine. And 30 of those residents got the flu from the sailors. There were 100 cases in Lake Forest on that date. There were 60 cases at Fort Sheridan, 60 cases in Winnetka, one in Evanston, and there was the first death in Waukegan 
And this was the wife of an electrician stationed at Great Lakes. Again, the military base is the epicenter here. Right. The hot zone. Right. And okay, so there were only 400 cases in, in the whole city of Chicago. And you look at the northern suburbs, it was just running rampant. 7,000 cases at Great Lakes by September 24th. So, I mean, that's unbelievable. An explosion of cases and then 68 deaths. 1,000 to 4,500 required hospitalization. And then at the municipal pier, which we know of as Navy Pier. Right. By September 25th, there were 23,000 cases of influenza and 112 deaths, mostly again due to the military camps. That's yeah, it's just unbelievable. I mean, like like here, just today, it's just it just raged so quickly. Two days later, on September 26th, the state of Illinois demanded that all public funerals are prohibited, closed casket, or glass sealed open casket, which to my mind brings up Vladimir Lenin. Mm. 200 physicians gathered at the Hotel Sherman on September 28th to just try to talk about how to deal with this. I hope they were separating, social distancing. Probably were not at that point. I'm sure they were smoking cigars and drinking port and coughing in their, each other's faces. Very possible. And then by the end of September, all dance halls, bars were closed. As you said, the schools remained open. Face masks were required, not optional, required for anyone outside. Yes, there was a, the council outlined a whole series of general behaviors. Avoid crowded assemblages, streetcars, and the like. Avoid persons suffering from colds, sore throats, and coughs. Avoid poorly ventilated places. Right. Sleep and work in clean, fresh air. Right. Avoid sudden chilling of the body. Eat plenty of plain, nourishing food and avoid alcoholic stimulants. They thought of alcohol as a stimulant at that point. Avoid expectorating, spitting in public places and see others do likewise. Avoid the coffer sneezer. Yes, always a good idea. Yeah, Here you, here's that rule. When you sneeze, cover your nose with a handkerchief. When you cough, cover your mouth. Used handkerchiefs, which hardly anybody uses anymore, must not be left where others may come in contact with them. Disinfect soiled handkerchiefs when discarding them, and then burn them or boil them or immerse them in an approved disinfectant solution. November 4th, the flu lid comes off was the title where uh, cabarets and dance halls got to open in Chicago. And then uh, November 17th, they announced in the paper the smoking ban on L trains would remain. Right, to this very day. So things start to open back up in early November, but then there are some new cases starting again in December with this third wave of the influenza that then probably hits in, in other parts of the country in March. But in Chicago on December 6th, there's 404 new cases of the flu and 23 deaths and 89 new pneumonia and 16 deaths from pneumonia. And they actually then closed two theaters, one on Pine Grove at 717 Sheridan Road and the Deluxe at 1141 West Wilson Avenue. So 
they weren't completely out of the woods. And again, Winnetka and Glencoe theaters and dance halls were closed by their local health commissioner, Dr. Schneider, because of the flu situation. So this wouldn't completely go away. And so it's a cautionary tale that once we get out of the woods with this COVID-19, there's the potential for another wave of it or more. Now, there's a great report by Dr. Robertson, who was the head of the health department in Chicago. Yes. Of John Dill Robertson. And he had pretty good statistics on the number of cases and number of deaths and which was from pneumonia, which was from influenza and so on. He also traveled to the East Coast during this outbreak to get more information in Washington, D.C. from health authorities and brought back a report to help manage and better handle the situation here in Chicago as well. So that would have been, of course, by train that he went, right? He, he couldn't just fly out there. So he was probably gone for about a week or so. Well, it's, it's interesting that, by the way, I'm sure that train was well ventilated. Right, right. You hope so. But again, Dr. Robertson is presented with mm-hmm. this outbreak in September, and they seem to move the needle on public policy rather quickly. Yes. Once the outbreak ramped up in earnest, definitely. And they were tracking the number of new cases and the number of deaths. And that was pretty much how they figured out, kind of like where we are today of if, you know, in New York, they're trying to figure out if they've peaked or not because they're looking at those numbers day to day. Now, the problem with that, of course, is typical data and reporting is not necessarily consistent. And the limited testing, so it's, it's just basically reported cases. Preliminary report by John Dill Robertson, who is the Commissioner of Health for the city of Chicago. And he did, uh, in November of 1918, a report on the epidemic in Chicago There was a a nice graph that was done. It basically goes from 19th of September through November 3rd. Yeah, and if you look at the graph, obviously this is a podcast. It's not a visual medium. We'll have that on the website. And Dr. Robertson has two plots on this. One is the influenza cases, and then one is the pneumonia cases. And it's interesting to see that they track very close to one another. Yep. Almost identical. But basically, it looks like uh, any photograph you've ever seen of the Grand Tetons. It's just, boom, it starts and shoots up very steep and then comes down. It, that's exactly what it looks like. Just exploded up between September, peaking in mid-October. It jumps from 10 cases or so on September 19th to where September 30th, there's 310 cases. Then... On October 5th, it jumps up to 900 cases, almost 1,000. The new cases jump up to almost 1,400. And then it ends up peaking in the 18th, 19th, 20th of October. It's really basically about a week-long period in Chicago where it's up to almost 1,800 cases a day. So it is interesting. It was the beginning of the fifth week the influenza was really cooking. Today, we're talking about sheltering in place. One can see, based on data of other pandemics, that there is a curve to it. Yep. Then he's got a second chart of the number of deaths. And the deaths basically peaked on October 17th at around 525 deaths in one day. And it looks like it kind of tails off, but not nearly as quickly as it rose at the front end of the curve. Yes. 
friend of mine, Tom Boyle, remembers in the 1940s when he was young, if you went to the doctor and had the measles, they would, someone would notify the health department mm -hmm. and then somebody would come to your house and they would stick a yellow card, like an index card on the front door of your house and it had black font and it said quarantine. So everybody knew it. This was not an uncommon thing to happen in the neighborhoods. So it shows how health departments on a local level were very important in history. And Tom grew up in Des Plaines and they stayed on top of this stuff. Apparently much more active and there were health inspectors. Yes. And this was before computers, you know, so they had a, a system that kept track of all this and they did a very good job of it. Well, I worked in manufacturing in, earlier in my career, and there was a lot of manual systems that worked really well. It's just, it took a fair amount of clerks or people to do repetitive tasks right. to maintain them, but they could be excellent at record keeping. In some cases, you'd then try to computerize those. Oftentimes, we'd find the manual process was better than when we computerized it. Now, part of that's human training and change management issues, but you know, when you want to really want to figure something out, humans are very good at developing a system. And if you can just follow it, it will work. I'm sure the health department of displays, there was probably a lot of carbon paper involved. That's, that's right. But you know what? It did the trick. One copy to the doctor, one to the health commissioner and one to the nurse and, and maybe the patient. I mean, everybody knew what was going on at that one particular house. And ironically in French, quarantine means 40. 40 seems to be the kind of universal quarantine period. Biblical. Yeah. 40 days and 40 nights. Right. Apparently in France, when you turn 40, they call you a quarantine, like kind of a slang, because you're 40. But it has the other connotation as well. The other thing then that they did to defend against this was at a certain point, everybody in Chicago was required to wear masks. And you're right. And if you look at the photographs, everybody was wearing a mask. Yeah. There was big ads in the paper to insist on people wear a mask and people could be arrested for not um, or for spitting and coughing and sneezing. And, it, and just in general for public health, you know, the other reason why it's, it's become social custom to cover your mouth when you cough or sneeze or use your elbow and the use of masks, which, you know, a lot of that's protect other people from what you might be carrying and, and spreading may better get caught with a mask or at least lower the distance and range and particulate in the air. You know, we talk about social isolation. Yes, and they, in one of the articles about how standing four feet away and coughing or sneezing, you could get hit with that. So I thought that was interesting. We've been talking about six feet away. Something tells me that's probably still not enough. Main mode of transport back then was the train. Yes, and or streetcars. The streetcars, right. And also, we learned from reading the literature and the accounts that smoking was banned on L cars and trains because of the uh, outbreak. But it was determined that smoking was not going to be part of this fresh air initiative. So it was banned. And guess what? It has been banned for the last 102 years. And it continues. And they thought that fresh air was, would help a great deal and encourage people to walk to work rather than going to these 
moving influenza boxes, I think was a, one of the phrases they used for the L cars. One of the big things that they did about having good ventilation, if you did go to churches or, or dance halls before they got shut down, and then even in the L cars of Greg Borzo, who's the Chicago expert on the L's, or one of, one of a couple I know, but probably one of the best, told us how the L Institute of the Fresh Air Car, prior to this influenza, he wasn't clear on what you know prompted that, that fresh air car, on certain trains, and it was helped by having the windows locked open to maximize the circulation of air. The goal was to clear out germs, uh, refresh people, and perhaps, I'm guessing here, he says, to strengthen their constitution, because there are advertisements in such cars that read, quote, get the fresh air habit, dress warmly enough to enjoy it, and also, quote, too much fresh air is just enough. (laughs) Well, I'm all for fresh air. (laughs) I don't know how much it helps. Maybe it just blew the influenza around a bit, but. Well, I'll tell you, you know, over the last two weeks, I've struggled with this coronavirus and getting out and getting some fresh air and maybe it's just part of just getting some movement going too, a little bit of exercise fresh air has helped even to the point of several days we had warm enough weather that then i would open the windows in the house and kind of air out the house it did seem like that was helpful and ventilation was very important they knew fresh air was good they would use that to sanitize the street cars or the l where they would open the windows and the doors for an hour or two what they called sanitize and get fresh air in there to get rid of the germs. Yes, and it may not have been the right thing to do, but it certainly stuck as did the ban on smoking. It sounds like it was. I saw a, a recent research video on showing particulates of somebody sneezing or coughing. They also showed those particulates can float for sometimes hours in a still room. But if you then open a window and get some ventilation, it quickly blew them you know, off and out of the area. It does seem like fresh air, even though it seems very anecdotal and unscientific, can make a big difference. And, and I, I honestly, I did that when I was sick here. When we had a couple of nice days, I opened the windows and tried to air the house out. And I seemed like that helped that and like change the sheets on the bed and wash everything and, and do that you know, fairly frequently as I was starting to recover from this whole thing. A spring cleaning, so to speak. Yeah, and I probably need some more. So <laughs> There were several articles about heat in apartments. Right. Health commissioner wanted the apartments to be at 68 degrees, and they made a big deal about this. That was one of his recommendations of not getting chilled or cold. Right. And that landlords should make sure that their tenants' heat did not go below 68 degrees. That was a number that he particularly recommended. Yes. Now, I happen to know that heat requirements for the city between September 15th and June the 1st, if you're a landlord, you have to maintain heat at 68 degrees during the day and at 66 at night. So that number 68, I have a feeling that Dr. Robertson's recommendations were probably put into law at some point. And then the city started to sue landlords that did not comply. And the city to this day goes after landlords who do not maintain uh, minimum heat temperatures. Now, what was also interesting was that they had come up with a preventative vaccine. It was a Rosenau's preventative vaccine. 
and it was developed up in Rochester, Minnesota, which I'm assuming was sort of the precursor of the Mayo Clinic because... Yeah, right, Rochester, sure. The Mayo family doctors, I think, were also involved in that research at that time because I'd read some other articles, but I didn't get one overall overarching explanation of how, how that occurred. But uh, by October 21st, Chicago was getting shipped 100,000 doses of this preventative vaccine uh, from Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, there was even another story where a couple days later, the Chicago and Northwestern Railway gets its employees vaccinated uh, so that they can keep up the service. So kind of going back to that whole idea of the truckers and the, the logistics of keeping critical supplies going and moving, the railroads were a key part of that, the truckers and shipping companies are today. Oh, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I mean, there were no super highways back then. You didn't have the, the fleets of trucks like you do today. Yeah, there was no interstate highway system. That wasn't done until the 50s, and Eisenhower really pushed that. So, right. In many ways, Patrick, just reviewing some of these articles, I think Doc Robertson did a very good job considering the science he had access to. Many of these recommendations that they went with were doing today in this pandemic. Yes, right. No doubt about it. Well, the other thing that I tried to get a handle on was what kind of you know economic toll did did this outbreak of uh, of influenza you know how did that relate to uh, the economy in 1918? And I couldn't find a lot of great information. There was definitely an economic toll from reports in the stock market that wasn't severe. But then in 1918, the number of people in the stock market was much less. There weren't 401ks. Very few people had pensions at that point. Well before the labor movement, benefits were part of employment, which would include some kind of pension or retirement plan. So it wasn't reflected so much in the stock market, although it did say that there was a big jump the next next year after the influenza. But there was concerns about coal output and uh, because, of course, we were burning a lot of coal. Definitely was uh, a loss of production because people were out sick and businesses were having a tough time getting by and surviving and continuing on. And also, we're looking at the influenza through the lens of, of history and we're looking through the Great Depression back within a decade or in the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. So whatever economic hardships occurred, they paled compared to the Great Depression. Right. In people's memories. Right. And again, I mean, it was a long time ago. We talked about a podcast that we both listened to uh, called Backstory, where one of the things they talked about was why do so few people talk or know about this influenza, even contemporary people. Yes, because they did a whole episode on the uh, Spanish flu, which was was interesting. We're going to have a link to it on our webpage. And yeah. They talked about how great doctors of the day, they were kind of embarrassed, didn't really want to dwell on it because it was such a dismal failure. They didn't want they didn't want to remember it. Well, it's, it's kind of similar to the uh, Eastland disaster here in Chicago, which happened in July of 1915. 
where 844 people died when the ship rolled over in the Chicago River, and many of them just drowned in in the ship. And that, too, was not talked about for almost 100 years because it just was so traumatic, and nobody wanted to talk about it. It was it was just right. something that wasn't well, done as much in those days, too. What was there to say about it other than utter destruction and terror? Right. So similar for the influenza. And then I think also on top of that, you add the patriotic sense that you didn't report bad things for fear the enemy might get wind of them and think that you're weaker than you are before you know, World War I ends, which isn't until November right. of uh, 1918. Ironically, the northern suburbs of Chicago had a lot of the influenza 102 years ago. I'm talking about Wilmette and Skokie and Evanston. They have mandatory mask orders uh, as of this week. Well, and they were the first hit in the Spanish flu being near Great Lakes right. Naval Training Center. It's right, and the numbers have been disproportionately large in the northern suburbs. I don't know why that is. It could be that the more wealthy suburbs have people that can travel from Europe and Asia and, and maybe get affected by the virus. Again, it's the northern suburbs that are having a, a large Well, initially, and, then, and I've also heard people nowadays that are considered essential workers oftentimes are people of color, people that can't work right. from home. So then while we're safely sitting in our homes, they're out basically having to deal with the virus and do the work that needs yeah. to get done, the deliveries, the healthcare work, all those elements that we're relying on to be able to safely ensconce ourselves and not really feel the pain of it. And hopefully as we come out of this epidemic, as you talked about at the beginning, these epidemics change our infrastructure and our and how we work and how we live. Ho- hopefully, we'll find ways that we can better, for lack of a better term, inoculate the the poor and and the less well off, so that they can more easily withstand or uh, go through these kind of situations in the future. Yeah, amen to that. You're right. It's those people on the front lines that maybe don't have a choice, can't telecommute. They're risking their lives for their livelihoods and for our benefit. You're quite right. Well, I personally, as your Windy City Historian podcast partner, want you to be well and recover. It is a slow recovery. The problem is that this current outbreak seems to attack your ability to get oxygen and that is why the fatigue is so bad because you're just not getting enough oxygen from your blood into your, the rest of your body. So we can do all these other podcasts. Cause again, you'd mentioned the laying the foundation. We only made it as far as the battle of Fort Dearborn. We have a lot of ground to cover. That's true. And I'm hoping to have the next podcast, which is about early Chicago, basically from the end of the war of 1812 up to the fire. We, interview two folks. We interview Ann Dirk and Keating again. That fits really well into a recent book on Juliet Kinsey. Yes. Also then we talk with Liz Gerbay, who basically looks at history through the lens of alcohol. She's not drunk during this, but she sees how beer, spirits, um, wine, how uh, it makes for gathering places and is a great facilitator of life and history. 
And so we'll talk with her as well. So that, that should be a fun podcast as well that's coming up soon. Terrific. As soon as I can finish editing it. That's true. <laughs> well, I miss going to the Waveland Island studios and doing this in person, but the Zoom call has allowed me to enter in back into the Waveland Island studios. And you're looking well, Patrick, for a guy that's been battling this. Well, thanks. I'm glad it was a very mild case and, and thankful that I could just hunker down and not have to worry about too much other than getting better. And it's been great to have a ton of people checking on me and making sure that I'm going to make it through this. And, and thankfully, I see the light at the end of the tunnel and it's not an oncoming train as far as I can tell. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians podcast. And be well and stay safe at home. Take care. Bye-bye. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick Briarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.